this reading will be for our sermon text. It is also from the Gospel of Mark, chapters 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was, as, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself the pow- that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him, in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. You may be seated. I'm honored and considered a privilege to be before you, to stand here in this pulpit, to bring in a proclamation of God's Word, and I thank you for your hospitality to your elders and your pastor, and uh, you've been very kind to us and our family, and uh, we have enjoyed our 
our visit so far, and we look forward to spending time with you at lunch and speaking with you uh, further. So thank you so much for this opportunity. If uh, you are familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you will know that it begins with a, an explanation of what's going to occur in this writing with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will, Mark will then set out to explain that. And as, as much as will happen in the events that occur, there are often questions that arise throughout the stories and throughout the events and things that Jesus does. There were questions after his teachings, you remember, who, who can teach like this? Uh, who says these things? Just in case, I'll go ahead and do that. And there was also things and after his miracles of how can he do these things, right? There were often questions asked after the actions of Jesus. If you were to go to the end of Mark chapter 4, and as it begins there into the section we have read in Mark chapter 5, you will see there are familiar accounts that you will know that are also filled with questions. For example, Jesus is going to cross with the disciples into Gentile country, and while He is crossing, and while they are crossing, a hurricane-like storm comes upon them, a vicious storm, a frightening storm, and the disciples ask a question first and say, do you not care that we are going to die? And then you know the account, Jesus stands up and says, peace be still, and He calms the storm. And it left the disciples asking a question, didn't it? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? And when that event was over, they crossed into, after crossing the sea, they came into Gentile territory, into the Gerasenes, and there they encountered a man, a demon-possessed man. And this man was frightening, he was chained, and it was a scary sight to Jewish men, and they were terrified in many ways. And Jesus would cast the demons out of this man. He would actually cast them out, and they would go into the pigs, and the pigs, as you know, would jump off the side of the mountain. And so what happened when that was over? A question was asked, who is this that by his word he speaks and he casts demons out of Gentiles. Who is this man? The disciples could look at these events and see what was going on. It left them curious and wanting to know more. And in both cases, they were deeply fearful of the storm and of the encounter with the demon-possessed man in the Gentile territory. Now, what is the purpose of these events? Why were these things happening? Well, the Israelites had many fears in their time. They would have had fears of the sea. They would have been fearful of other nations even. And they were fearful and around demons. Not to say that we shouldn't be fearful of demons, right? I, I don't say that to mock them, but reality is if we encountering demons and this kind of thing would leave someone fearful. They were fearful of even the demon-possessed. They were not uh, crazy about tombs or pigs. They had many things they feared and did not want to be around. And in these situations that we've read of between these two events that precede uh, the reading today, you had the disciples caught in a situation... And in an in-between place that I would assume, and I think I would assume rightly, that every person in here has been through 
and has been in that place and will likely be in that place again if you are not here right now. Caught between fear and faith. Caught between fear and faith. And Jesus, so we ask, what was the purpose of these things? Jesus in these events was taking the fears of the disciples head on. And the goal in that was to deepen their faith and trust in Him. In other words, it was to show them that Jesus is the sovereign king over all of their fears and over all of their enemies. And when we come to Mark 5, verses 21 through 43, we have a similar situation. A similar situation of being caught in between fear and faith. And this account starts with a father named Jairus. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, the text says. And as a ruler of the synagogue, it is possible that he was also a Pharisee, although it's not known for sure. Jairus would have been wealthy, and being from Capernaum, as the Gospel of Luke tells us, Jairus would be familiar and possibly even heard Jesus preach in person. He would have seen and known of Jesus' miracles. He would have known that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. He would have known that Jesus healed a paralytic. He would have known and that Jesus had restored a man with a withered hand and known that Jesus cast out demons. He knew all of this. He was fully aware. And Jairus was also aware of the great opposition from the scribes and the Pharisees towards Jesus and his work and his teaching and his ministry. And so Jairus being aware of what Jesus had done and what he was saying, and Jairus knowing of the opposition and, the, and, and who it was that was opposing Jesus, he would have likely looked at his options at this point, before this chapter, I should say, and probably thought, I'm going to sit back on the sidelines and observe and not get involved in this. So he just probably just knew of Jesus and kept himself regarding him. But in verse 21, in the account that begins here, everything changes. Because Jairus is a father, and he is the father of a 12-year-old girl. That's what verse 42 tells us. And his little girl is sick to the point of death. She is on the verge of death. It is very near. The all, all likelihood is, is that it's over and that she would die. The human hope that Jairus would have of healing and restoration of his daughter is gone. Only God at this point can do anything. Only God can intervene to save her. And so the account tells us when we understand this, we see now why Jairus is looking for Jesus and why when Jairus would have found out that Jesus has come back from Gentile country, that Jairus is going to find him, that Jairus would be desperate to find Jesus. He is driven to the truth and driven to go to Jesus and think he can help. Jesus can do something about this. 
Because he knows that God is with Jesus. He cannot ignore what has happened and what Jesus has done and said. He knows that God is with him. And so Jairus goes to find Jesus, and he finds Jesus, this ruler of the synagogue, who would uh, be the leader of of the synagogue that day, finds Jesus getting off the boat from Gentile territory where he had been around pigs and tombs and demon-possessed Gentiles. Jesus would have been filthy in their, their eyes, right? And Jairus goes to find him and to find him with all of his Gentile uncleanness on him. And when he finds Jesus, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, falls before Jesus. Listen to what happens in verse 23 again. Jairus is referring to, implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jairus is there and he implores and begs Jesus to help. And Jesus agrees. He agrees to come to this man's house and to help him and to heal this little girl. And Jairus would be in that point joyful but he's also urgent, isn't he? Because while Jesus is there and has agreed to help, this is a time-sensitive matter, and he must act and go quickly. So you can imagine the scene that Jairus has come to Jesus, he's found him off the boat, and that people are starting to come, and Jairus knows how this is going to go. As soon as he gets there, People are going to come flocking to him. I have got to get to him and tell him and and then get him to agree and then almost basically run and get back there as fast as possible. Time is of the essence. So he would say, Jesus, yes, I will go. And Jairus says, we have to go now. And the crowd starts coming as it usually does. Because crowds, a great crowd, Mark says, followed him and thronged about him that it would be hard to even move in this crowd. And in this crowd, which would have, at this point, was normal for Jesus, for a crowd to be around him, there is in this crowd another person who is desperate too. And Mark tells us of this woman, that it is an elderly woman, A woman with an unceasing flow of blood or an unceasing discharge of blood that has gone on for 12 years. This woman is in the crowd. He tells us that she has gone to doctors, she has spent all of her wealth, and is no better. Nothing has happened. She's not any better. She still has this sickness, this this ailment, and this, she is desperate to, and it's just feeling deflated most likely. And this sickness that she has, this problem that she would have, has devastating effects upon her. She would have been in the law, the ceremonial law, perpetually unclean. She would always be unclean. She was poor, as we said. And being perpetually unclean means that every bed that she lies on is unclean. Every chair she sits in is unclean. And every person that she touches is unclean. And everyone who would sit in her chair or maybe get it, sit on her bed would be unclean. And she would need to tell them that she is unclean. She would be prevented from participating in worship 
from participating in the feast, from participating in going to temple, right? She, she would not be able to do that. This is a devastating effect upon this woman. She would be like the leper in the first reading of Mark 1, facing what we might think a living death. And it tells us that this has been going on for 12 years. Now, how old was the daughter of Jairus? She was 12. Jairus has had 12 years of joy, right? 12 years with a little girl that he loves that brings him delight. And this woman has had 12 years of misery. And both are in the same place, though. All human help and hope is gone. It's not getting any better for her. There's no more money. There's nothing else to do. He's tried everything. Only God can do something. Just like Jairus in his situation. She's at the point of death. These 12 years have been starkly different, but they're in the same place at this very day and in this very moment. And this woman, also like Jairus, is familiar with the works and the accounts of Jesus. She's heard him preach. She's seen the miracles. She knows of the miracles. She probably knew these things too. And she hears that Jesus is back. I would also add she's aware of the opposition of the scribes and the Pharisees to Jesus too. So it's important to her that, that, that of knowing that as well, that of the scribes and Pharisees oppose him. And to follow him might mean that they would oppose her. But she hears that he's back. She hears that he's there and she is desperate for him too. Verse 28 says, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So you could look at the scene and assess this. The crowd was the worst case scenario for Jairus. But for this woman, the crowd was the best case scenario. She can touch him, even his garments, and be healed and no one will know. Nothing will stop. It'll all go away. No one will know. Yes, if I bump into all these people, they're going to be unclean. I'm not going to tell them. I'm just going to walk in, touch, I'll be healed, and this will be over. This crowd is the best thing that could happen to the woman and the worst thing that could happen for Jairus. And so this woman gets near. She touches Jesus, right? Reaches out, touches his garment, and we hear and we know that she is healed. She knew that the flow, the discharge of blood had dried up. And something happened that I've got a feeling she was not prepared for. Jesus stops and he looks around and asks his disciples, or maybe he just asks out loud, he goes, who touched my clothes? Okay, so here's the scenario. Imagine uh, we'll take Pastor Jeremy, since we'll pick on someone. We're all going to crowd around him. And you're going to start walking and we're going to follow him. And one of you is going to reach out and just touch his garments. And he's going to say, now which one of you touched me? Now I'm not going to ask who, but I would wonder in a 
congregation this size, there's probably somebody in here that would look back or look right at him like the disciples and say, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Who touched you? Everybody touched you. There's a crowd of people around you. But read between the lines. We've got a little girl that's at the point of death And we're trying to get there, and we're having to fight through this crowd. And you want to know who touched you? This is a pretty similar tone, I think, to Mark chapter 4. There is a hurricane around us, and you're asleep. Do you not care? Do you not care? And Jesus ignores them. And he looks around and he wants to know who touched him. Look what happened in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The woman comes forward. She's fearful. She's trembling. She's scared. And she has to tell him what happened. I think it's important, just as a side note, to know that Jesus did not let her keep her secret. He called her for it. He wants to know what happened. And she tells him, and now everyone's going to know about her issue. Everyone's going to know what is going on. Everyone's going to know that if you bumped into her, right, that this, this is not good, that if she touched you, this is very bad. She falls down before him, just like Jairus, and lays it all at his feet. And Jesus says something to her, In verse 34, his response is, daughter, although a different form, the same root word as my little daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus gives her a term of affection and says to her, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Your faith in me has saved you. You did what you should have done. You came to me. You are healed. You are healed of your affliction. You may go in peace. I will not make this worse for you. You're healed. You can imagine what she felt. And you can imagine the joy and the overwhelming emotion that had to come to this woman to be told, you're healed. After all this time, after all the effort, you're healed. Jesus has done what, he, what you believed Him to be. He is the one who heals you. But before you can take all of this in in the text, verse 35 comes. While He was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Good news for this woman. And the worst news comes to Jairus. They come and they give him the worst thing he could hear. See, Jairus was correct in this sense, wasn't he? The interruption and the crowd proved fatal. Now imagine what Jairus had to feel. I wish I, I guess I didn't make this note, but consider it. Jesus stops and says, who touched me? What was Jairus thinking? What would he feel when he hears of this happening, of of when time is of the essence? 
And Jesus stops. And before it can be taken in, what's going on? He comes and he gets the news. The most crushing thing he could have ever heard. She died. There's no need to bring Jesus. It's over. I'm sorry. He's crushed. You can imagine he's crushed. And imagine that he's overwhelmed with emotion. But Jesus is there and he hears what happened. And he again, he ignores. He doesn't take into account deeply what they're saying. Verse 36 and 37 tell us, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He looks at this man who's been told that his daughter is dead. His 12-year-old daughter is dead. He looks at him and says, Do not fear what is happening. Trust me. Believe in me. Do not fear. And so Jesus, he sends away. You can see in verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So he takes Jairus, he takes his three of the disciples, and they go and they go to the house. And he arrives at the home. And there are signs of grief and of mourning everywhere. The rituals of mourning the loss of a deceased have begun. There are mourners who are wailing. They would gather in a circle and sing songs. There would be music playing of songs of death, and it would be mournful, and there would be wailing, there would be crying. It's just an awful scene. It's awful to imagine walking into this. Imagine coming home and hearing the news that your daughter is dead, and seeing that everything has gone on. And so Jesus and Jairus and the three disciples come inside. And verse 39 says this, When he had entered, this be Jesus, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And so like everybody, that when Jesus declares something that goes against what they're seeming to understand, what do they do? They change their tune and believe him, right? No, no, they don't. It says that they laugh at him or they mocked him and ridiculed him. What a fool you are. We were here. We saw her die. And you're going to come in here and say, she's not dead, she's only sleeping? They mocked him. And so Jesus... Again, he makes everybody leave. He clears out the house and says, the father and the mother, Jairus, his wife, and the three disciples, you come with me. And he takes them into that little girl's bedroom where she's laying on the bed, dead. Now get this scene in your head. His little daughter is on the bed, deceased. In her room, And Jesus has come in. And Jesus, he doesn't do what Jairus asked him to do, which is just touch her hand. No, Jesus is the most compassionate and loving and gracious and kind and sympathetic person of all. He takes her by the hand. And he says to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, wake up. 
little girl, it's time to wake up. And she hears his voice and she wakes up and she's alive. She's healed. He told him, you don't fear, you believe me. He took him through the worst thing he could ever have lived through, he could imagine. And he comes in there and he heals this little girl. Just by a touch and a holding of her hand and speaking, she's healed. And you can imagine the wonder and the amazement. The Greek would be best said that they looked at him with, amazed with great amazement at what just happened. You can imagine the tears that come forth when they see her sit up. You can imagine the thankfulness and the joy that, these, that this mother and this father have and the awe that the disciples would have had to have watched this happen. They were amazed with great amazement. In verse 42, it says, Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And so they looked to Jesus. Because what can you do in that moment when you see your daughter raised and who was dead and now she's alive and you look to him and wonder? And what do you think? You probably ask questions, don't you? Who is this man? Who is this man that even death flies from him? That he can touch a little girl's hand and hold it and can speak and she rises from the dead. That he can speak and a storm and a hurricane can be calmed. That he can speak and demons can flee. That he can touch and heal withered hands and make lame men walk. And he would do this like, well, who is this man? And then there's an even deeper level of amazement. Because you would imagine what a person would want to do. You want to tell. You'd want it to be known. But Jesus is not. Because it's not time. He looks at Jairus' wife and the disciples and he warns them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. They're not ready to receive. This isn't the kind of king they want. Don't tell them. And one last thing. You could go get her some food, your little girl. Now, here's the question at the end of this story, this account that is simply amazing. Are you not amazed at Jesus when you hear of this, when you read this? When he speaks, I said this, right? The wind and the sea obey him. When he speaks, demons flee his presence. When he speaks, he heals the sick. He raises the dead. And yet, here's the even more amazing part of him. From that, he is compassionate and gracious and loving and humble. Aren't you amazed at him that he can do this, yet he does not draw attention to his deeds? He didn't want it broadcasted. Jesus can speak and people can rise from the dead. Jesus can speak and cast demons out. He can cast thousands or hundreds of demons out of someone. He can touch a man and be healed and he can walk. And yet Jesus pushes a crowd away to minister to a desperate old woman. He pushes the crowd away and takes this man 
and ministers to him and cares for him. He pushes the crowd away and heals a little girl, brings her to life, a sick little girl and a desperate father. And he is amazing because he does say, don't spread this around. And he says that to someone who probably had the ear of the scribes and the Pharisees, who could have gone to them and said, you're wrong about him. Jesus says, no, you don't tell them. Don't tell them. He's amazing, isn't he? But what is more amazing of Jesus is that these works that we just spoke of, these works that we know of, they aren't even the end of Jesus' works. And they're not even the height of Jesus' works. As glorious as this healing was, as glorious as the healing was of the woman, and as glorious as the raising of the little girl was, it didn't last forever. Because Jairus, Jairus' daughter, is dead now. She died, didn't she? She's not alive anymore. She died. So this tells us that there's something more amazing. Because Jesus came for greater purposes. And that's what sets him apart even more so. He was sent by the Father to raise the dead forever. He was sent by the Father to raise the dead forever. And He does so by taking on our human flesh. He does so by living the life in the flesh that you and I could never live, being perfectly clean and perfectly pure, and taking in His body and go walk, walking to the cross, going to Calvary, shedding His own blood on the cross, bearing our sins. This was more amazing than even raising of this little girl. And he, on the third day, rose again in his resurrection, which is more amazing than healing this woman and raising this little girl. And by his shedding his blood, bearing our sins, and rising again on the third day in his body that was crucified, it was that, that from that act that an old woman, that Jairus, that his wife, that his daughter, and that the disciples, and that all who would believe then and now, that all of us would be free from our pain, free from sickness, free from sorrow, and we would be raised to death eternally. That was his great act. And this was a foreshadowing of what he would do. It was a foreshadowing of how Jesus would, in his great works. He called the little girl right, and said, little girl, arise, and she arose. And the father calls upon his name, and he arose. And if you are in Christ Jesus and you find yourself in the grave, in the tomb, He, at the last day, will call your name, and you will arise too. And an act greater than anything that these two things could speak of. In Christ Jesus, He calls our name, and we arise, and we have our sins forgiven now, and are promised of a future resurrection because of His resurrection in the flesh. Amen? Amen. Jesus is amazing, and He is wonderful, as these texts tell us. So, how then should we live? What can we take away from this for application? I think it addresses a few groups of people. You may find yourself in one or all. I'll start with this one. It addresses the fearful. If you are fearful, maybe you say you're fearful of the future. You're fearful of death. Fearful of safety. You're fearful of being lonely or you have financial fears, or you have fears of getting older, 
If you find yourself in a place of fear, what does this text say to you? What does it say to us? It says a few things. First, you need to know that if this reveals first that Jesus deeply cares about you and your situation. Because this was, again, an older woman. It was a person who would not have been considered, yes, Jairus was important, but a little girl and an older woman. It tells us that Jesus deeply cares about you and he deeply cares about your situation. What causes you fear? Jesus is not numb to. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He really cares. Honestly, he probably cares about it more than you even care. But here's the other thing you need to know. He's in control of it. Is this story reveal, yes, it reveals things of his wonder and glory, but does it also not reveal that Jesus is in control of your situation that's causing you fear? The trials that you endure and are enduring, the hardships that you would go through, the persecution that you would suffer for his name, the grief that you would feel, and even the fear of death, all of it, all of those things, well, I should say all of them, but they... They do not catch Jesus. They do not catch our Lord by surprise. He is not surprised that you are in this situation. He is not surprised by what you would go into. You need to hear and take to heart the same words that Jesus gave to Jairus and to those around, right? Trust me. Do not fear. Believe me. Trust me. But understand something about him being in control. What it means is, is that he's in control and he cares. But it also means that he calls the shots. This trial, this situation, he's in control of it and he calls the shots. Which means he does things that we don't understand. And he does things in ways we don't understand. And he does things at times we don't understand. Why wait 12 years for this to be healed? Why would this little girl die? Why now? You knew that this was going to happen if you didn't hurry, that she would die. Why did you stop? But he's in control, he cares. And he cares about your fears. But being in control means he calls the shots. And he's going to do things on his time. And sometimes that means that he'll do things in ways we don't understand. At times we don't understand. But because he is sovereign over us, we must trust him to work in his own way. Shouldn't we? We have to trust Him to work in these situations in His way and not our way. Number three, for the fearful, you can know this. He cares and He's in control, but He's going to do something about the fears. What does this mean exactly? He doesn't just remove the hardship, which would be easy enough, right? He goes through the hardship with you. 
He's there with you in the hardship. He's not just taking it away. He goes through it with you. What can you go through that the Lord Jesus does not understand and has not experienced and known? He goes through it with you. And this is why you can trust Him. Because He went through the worst thing for you. He went under the wrath of God. He endured death. He endured the cross. He went through the worst thing for you. And He does not rise from the dead and send His Holy Spirit to simply say to you, if you need anything, give me a holler. He's right there with you. He goes through this with you. And here's how you can know He cares and you can trust for the fearful. Your future is His future. His future is at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all as a first fruits of the resurrection that we all will know. It's promised to us. He goes through it with you. Your future is here. His future is your future. This text also says something to those who are physically sick. One of the glories that we know of eternal life is that chronic illness and pain will go away at death. When you die, we know that it goes away, that we know that in death there's no more pain physically and there's no more suffering or even the sorrow that comes through dealing with that in that time. It's that it's, it's gone at our death, right? But with Jesus we have a re- the reality of the future resurrection and the future age where all things are made right and restored. It's broken into our age now. And that is good news for the physically sick and those with illness and pain because it is a promise to us that Jesus comes to us now. Jesus comes to the sick and comforts in afflictions now. He comes by His Spirit. Advent, the season of Advent, is a promise to us of His coming at birth. It looks forward to His coming in, in the, second, the second coming, but we can know that it's a promise to us to know that Jesus will Advent to us or come to us in our sickness and our afflictions, even now. He comes to us by His Spirit. He ministers to us now in pain. He leads us through our trials now. He gives us promises and ensures us they are true now. And this is ultimately why we pray for the sick to be healed, isn't it? It's why we are to praise God in all circumstances and in all outcomes because Jesus is coming to us. He will minister to us now and also into the future. This is also a word is given to those who are believe themselves to be unclean. It is not uncommon for a Christian to believe and at least assent to the belief that they are forgiven but still feel unclean. And often like the woman in the story, they'll keep it a secret. And the hope is for someone who thinks of sin, whether their own sin or sinned against, that they has left them perpetually dirty and filthy and unclean, you need to remember this story and remember the words that Jesus spoke to that leper The leper said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus looked at him and said, I will. And he touched him and made him clean. When Jesus said, I will, he was committing himself 
to doing whatever it would take to make that leper clean. And Jesus commits himself to his people to say, I will do whatever it takes to make you clean. To the point of shedding blood on the cross, enduring death, enduring consequences of your sin, I will do whatever it takes. He has given his body to heal us. He purifies us with his blood. And so for those who, can, who walk and live often thinking, I'm unclean, I'm unworthy, I've sinned, I, I know I'm forgiven, but yet I feel this stain and this, this filth is upon me, hear this good news of Jesus coming to make you pure, to make you clean, and know that by repentance and faith, He does so and continues to purify you with His blood. It says something as well to parents, I believe. If you are a parent in this room and you read this text, you should see yourself in the place of Jairus. See, Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. It says so four times in the text, ruler of the synagogue. And here's what you must remember as a parent. You can give your children much. You can give them resources. You can give them love. You can give them an abundance of things, emotionally, spiritually, right? Physically and possessions. But you cannot be everything for them. You can't provide everything for them, and you can't be everything for them. Would Jairus have done, would he have done anything he could? He did everything in his power for his daughter, but he couldn't do everything. He did everything he had, but it was limited. What a parent should look at this text and take away in regards to our parenting is that the great hope for our children is not us, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope for your children. That's the hope for all children. That's the hope for all the children in this room. And every parent should look at their children and think of that. I can be a lot, but I can't be everything. Their great hope is only in Jesus. And this needs to be kept before your children. Because if something tragic happens, then you have prepared them. And they are prepared to know, Mommy and Daddy love you and we'll do everything within our power, but we can't be everything for you. Jesus is everything for you. And I want to end finally with a word to the children. I would say young children, but also teenagers still, or maybe adults who still look to their parents in ways that they depend upon their parents, and possibly sinful or ways in need correction. Your mom and dad, children, will do anything for you but they can't do everything for you. Parents need to remember that, but children, you need to remember that too. They can't do everything for you. But Jesus loves you. Jesus loves children. He loves His children. And He is everything to children. He is the one who can do everything they need. And so children, what do you need to remember? That no matter what happens to you, Even if you face death, Jesus will come to you. Jesus will come to you, children. And that is your great hope. It's the hope of your mother and your father. It is the hope of your pastors, the hope of your elders, the hope of your family. It's the hope of everyone. 
And it has to be your hope too. And so, I think our questions that were posed at first have been answered, haven't they? Who is this man? The one whom nature obeys? Who cast out demons? Who heals the sick? Who raises the dead? Who is this man? This is our Lord. This is our God. This is our elder brother. This is our friend, our dearest friend. And this is our Savior. And to him all glory and honor and praise is to be. Amen.